And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight from the Land of Enchantment, actually from the Land of Monsoons, as we're going to talk about momentarily. We're having rain in the desert, which is really nice. Unfortunately, we're having a lot of rain, which is not so nice. Um, We're going to have a very interesting show tonight. We've got Rick Spence with us, and we're going to have Georgia Lambert in the third hour to kind of lift us up to the 30 to 50,000 foot level in terms of the things that Rick and I are going to talk about. Um, this kind of is a interesting collaboration, and you're going to hear at the bottom of the hour one of the things that uh, Rick and I collaborated on. Actually, we, uh, well, I, I, I don't want to give it away, so we'll just wait till the bottom of the hour. Um, starting with the news, if you go to, if you're new to the show, go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. Uh, that will take you to our show page. And then you click on tonight's banner, which says dramatically, you want a revolution? <clears throat> you say you want a revolution. And uh, just click on that. That will take you to the guest page. Scroll down just under the banner there. You'll see fast links to items, me, Richard, and Rick, to Richard's tonight, so we always differentiate. Click on mine, that will take you to my news items. Um, in case you haven't noticed, about uh, uh, 10 days or so ago, we talked extensively about the extraordinary floods going on in Germany and in Belgium. Well, the Belgians have uh, had another spate of really bad, bad uh, luck uh, in the little town called... Dinant, D-I-N-A-N-T. They woke up to a huge cleanup job on Sunday because it rained, uh, perhaps uh, one could say uh, cats and hammer handles, as my grandmother would have said, for a couple hours, and they had extraordinary floods. Fortunately, no one was killed. There were 37 people killed in Belgium from the previous floods uh, a couple, you know, a week or so ago. But this time they escaped, you know, that kind of tragedy, but they lost all their cars because this flood rushed down the main street, swept all the cars away, and then flooded all the garages. So um, they have a huge cleanup job. Again, this is emblematic of what's happening planet-wide, which is we are undergoing global warming. And when you have warming, when you have more energy in the system, you have more evaporation. Remember I talked with Dane and he said, what was not happening on the west coast of the United States is you would think with warming you would have more evaporation of ocean water, you would have more thunderstorms, more uh, uh, convective activity, you'd have more rain along the coast, but of course um, uh, he is of the opinion that there is heavy geoengineering going on along the west coast of the United States, and that is precluding the normal rainfall along the coast and there's severe drought in uh, Washington and Oregon and in Northern California and uh, even in parts of Southern California. That's been going on for some time. Well, this situation in Europe, which they have modeled in the computer and they're saying that this will increase in severity over the coming decade, is that as you have more energy in the system, if you don't do anything, if you don't tinker with the system, you will get more rain because of more evaporation and then uh, more condensation. So Europe is suffering from this particular situation. And it comes, as all this stuff does, in cycles. So you have artificial geoengineering efforts to ameliorate some of this, superimposed on the natural cycles of the background physics, superimposed on the metonic changes due to buildup of carbon in the atmosphere, particularly methane. And so you get general warming. I mean, ultimately, um, something has to be done on a much more drastic level. And I'm looking to do the kind of show or probably shows where if you do the right kind of geoengineering, there is such a thing as the right kind of geoengineering? Yes, there is. And uh, we we will talk about it when I have assembled my ducks and they are all neatly in a row. Moving on, item number two. Um, The monsoons here are an annual situation in the fall. Uh, Many, many years ago when uh, 
Robin and I were trying to go to the Lowell Observatory in northern Arizona, which is just a few hundred miles to the west of us. Um, we needed to get there and to do observations using Lowell's original telescope in August. And August is the peak of the monsoon season here in the southwest. And uh, we had an extraordinarily interesting time because Robin was one of those rare people who was able to literally, with her own consciousness, affect the cloud cover. It's called cloud busting. It goes back to uh, Wilhelm Reich and Orgone and the stuff we've talked with uh, Dr. James DeMeo about extensively on the show. Anyway, um, you can do use a technology to amplify this. It's really the torsion field again, of course. Or you can use your mind. And Robin literally was able to clear the skies over the Lowell Observatory, over Mars Hill, on this particular night in August uh, of 2003, when Mars was closer than it had been for 60,000 years. Now, not by much, you know, by, you know, what, a few thousand miles, maybe half a million, something like that. But it was one of those stunning historic things, and we shot videotape, and we actually got the chance to use the telescope and, you know, take video through it. This was, you know, Lowell's famous telescope, which he used to discover uh, uh, canals on Mars and to extensively map seasonal darkening and waves of darkening and the appearance and disappearance of the polar caps and all that. Anyway, uh, that was all kind of up for grabs that night because of the monsoon rains. This is back in 2003. Well, the monsoons have gotten much more dramatic <clears throat> in the decade um, or so since. And if you go to item number two, you can see just what they look like here in the great American Southwest. Now, in terms of tonight's topic, which is history, I ran across this from one of our listeners who sent this to me apropos of absolutely nothing except it's a really cool story. Um, there is some spectacular drone footage of the Giza Plateau, of the Great Pyramid, taken from directly over the apex. And if you click on that link, item number three, you'll get a series of successively closer and closer views focusing right in on that platform on the apex of the Great Pyramid, which used, of course, to be covered with an extraordinary uh, coating of limestone blocks. The blocks have long since been removed by the uh, building programs in Cairo going back, you know, a thousand years or more. And so what you're left with is the interior um, blocks making up the bulk of the pyramid. And when you look at this footage in detail, it's really interesting to see how crude the interior blocks were. Again, completely um, upscaled and upstaged by the extraordinary precision of the interior passageways and the granite inside the limestone, etc., etc., etc. So that's kind of interesting from an historical perspective, which leads into item number four. As you know, I have said many, many, many times about um, our ventures into extraterrestrial archaeology that the real breakthrough is going to come when somewhere in the solar system, either here on Earth or on the moon, or on Mars, or somewhere floating in the asteroid belt, etc., etc., we find the libraries. Well, this item number four, this is a really interesting story. This is a story of a family who have a family home, and it's been passed down through generations. Um, the current owner, the current descendant of great-great-great-grandparents found in the attic, apparently in an old uh, trunk, or not a trunk, but a, actually a bureau, um, a little box, a time capsule from a little girl from 120 years ago. And in this box with her mementos, the things that she thought were important, so she put them away, and they've survived 120 years in the dark in this little cabinet, this little bureau, he found two glass 
negatives. And he develops them. And when you click on this, <clears throat> you will see a piece of video showing how he brought these images from this little girl who, of course, is totally into history now. She's no longer with us. But her time capsule, her personal, you know, legacy to the world as to what was important at that moment in her life is preserved not only in the artifacts, but in the photographs, the two glass plate negatives that she left in this little box, which her great-great descendant then resurrected by developing them with modern chemistry. Anyway, it's a really intriguing story, and it's so emblematic of the overarching theme of tonight, which is history. And I cannot wait for the day when we find the libraries of the real history of the human species going back, well, in terms of some calculations, that history, if it's what I think it could have been and left by whom I think it might have been, it could go back literally millions of years with video. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Anyway, that's a great prelude to my guest this morning, who is Dr. Richard Spence, who is our kind of resident historian. Um, Richard is professor of history at the University of Idaho. His interests include Russian and military history, along with espionage, occultism, and anti-Semitism. His major published works include Boris Sakhanov, Renegade on the Left, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, and Wall Street and the Russian Revolution from 1905 to 1925. Rick is the author of numerous articles in Revolutionary Russia, Intelligence and National Security, the Journal for the Study of Anti-Semitism, American Communist History, The Historian, New Dawn, and other publications. He's been interviewed countless times and has been a commentator and consultant for the History Channel, the International Spy Museum, Radio Liberty, and documentaries produced by the Russian Cultural Foundation. And without further ado, Rick, welcome back to the other side hey. of Midnight. Glad, glad to be back. Before we get into the substance of, of, of what we're going to talk about tonight, I always love these stories about New Mexico, the land of enchantment, the wild, wild west. And before we went on the air, you were telling uh, Kinthea and me and, and Keith this amazing story of what was happening many years ago just up the street. So why don't we begin there? Because, you know, the history of New Mexico I find endlessly fascinating because it has one foot in the ancient past, the Wild West, and one foot in the future, certainly the future of atomic physics, a la, you know, what was occurring down at Trinity just south of me. So why don't we start with that, because it's really kind of cool. Okay, well, it's, it's a spy story, and it's a spy story set in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So here's the story. And of course, there are slightly different versions of it, but here's, here's the basic one. Uh, for many, many years, and I think probably maybe from the 1920s all the way up through the 1980s, there was a pharmacy in the main plaza in Santa Fe, which I was told later at some point became a Haagen-Dazs ice cream shop. Right. Um, I'm not absolutely certain of that, but that's that, that, at one point that's what it's supposed to become after it stopped being Zook's Pharmacy. So anybody from Santa Fe, anybody who's uh, you know has some history going back there in the ways, may well remember Zook's Pharmacy, Z double O K. Family was very well known. Father, I think, was John Zook, and uh, he had a daughter, I think, was Katie or, or Catherine, who sort of took over the business after he retired. And what is remarkable about Zook's Pharmacy is that it was used by Soviet intelligence, what we like to call the KGB, mm. as a safe house and a operative base, if you will, from around 1939 
up into some indefinite time into the 1950s. It's, it, it seems to have operated uh, maybe as late as the early 1960s. And what it started out as, there was a, uh, a Soviet agent who was operating in Mexico in the late 1930s by the name of Joseph Grigulevich. Joseph Grigulevich was, uh, was essentially an assassin. And what he was involved in was a thing called Operation Duck. That's right, Operation Duck. Like quack and quack? Operation Quack Quack, okay? <laughs> and Utka. And it was um, the plan to assassinate uh, revolutionary immigrate Leon Trotsky. Ah. Uh, you know, Leon Trotsky had been kicked out of the USSR by Stalin, was considered Stalin's arch enemy, and there was basically a hit out on him. And Gagulovich was in, involved um, in, in organizing that hit um, and had, had essentially gone and rented an apartment uh, above Zook's pharmacy, which they rented out. And he may even have started in an affair with a daughter, but which was one of the things that he was, you know, generally, you know ingratiate yourself to your host. <laughs> and so what that, that, what, what that was initially used for, from around 39 to 41, was a, a base for planning Trotsky's assassination, also is a safe house. So if you had to get out of Mexico quick, but you didn't want to enter the U.S. legally, you could go there, hide out for a while, until they found a way to smuggle you out. But then World War II comes along, and the Manhattan Project starts, and Los Alamos is involved, and Sandia Labs is there, and is recruiting people to work at Los Alamos. And, you know, once the Soviets figured out that the Americans had an atom bomb project going, well, you know, that was, they were just all over that. And what they discovered was that, hey, you know, we've actually got this apartment we're still leasing <laughs> above, this, <laughs> above this pharmacy. So... Uh, years, years later, one of the uh, KGB spymasters involved in this, a fellow by the name of Pavel Sudoplatov, wrote his memoirs. And his memoirs are controversial in, in many respects. But uh, Sudoplatov uh, told his side of the story, and that involved, and one of the things he said is that, well, we continue, you know, in, in the development of infiltration of the Manhattan Project, um, this this was a this was used as a as a kind of transfer point for information that messages would be sent to people working you know, undercover in the apartment above the pharmacy and that that continued at least up until forty nine um, but maybe maybe past that uh, the other story I was told uh, by someone who claimed that he had done it is that Zook's pharmacy, that the this place of that pharmacy was so famous in KGB circles that if retired or traveling KGB men came through Santa Fe, they would have their pictures taken in front of it. <laughs> oh, the era of the selfie before the selfie. Yes, yeah, they, they would have selfies taken and say, hey, here I was with this place. So it was considered to be to be one of their secrets. And uh, so just in case anybody was interesting, how many acknowledged spies did the Soviets get into Los Alamos by 1945? Four. Uh, three of which we know, one of which is still seemingly an open question. And uh, that uh, was, was uh, the U.S. figured that out from a thing called the Venona Decrypts, essentially a code-breaking program in 1949, but then the KGB was informed almost at once that the Americans knew because Kim Philby, who was a Soviet spy and the British MI6, who just happened to be the liaison guy <laughs> mm. with CIA and others in Washington, was telling them everything. So uh, it's it's a interesting and involved story in many ways. My, my, my. But if you're, if you're ever passing by and wherever Zook's Pharmacy was, uh, that building has a history to it that you'd never know by just looking at it. Well, the next time I get to Santa Fe, uh, Rob and I used to go up there, you know, quite a lot. Um, I will look and see if uh, there's a Hagen dazs and if there is, I will look upstairs. <laughs> okay, let us talk about the subject of tonight, which is, you know, as as I look around the culture right now, we are really in the horns of a dilemma. We've gotten to the position where half of us do not believe the other half of us. And I'm kind of 
upset because I don't think you can have representative democracy very long if people can't communicate, if there's no common language, and if they don't even agree over basic facts. I mean, what was it? Uh, um, which which one of the founders? Uh, not Jefferson. It was probably. Um, Oh, I'm trying to think of some of the other founders. One of them said, you know, you're entitled to your own opinion, but not your own facts. We seem to be in a culture now where people feel entitled to their own facts. Remember Kelly, Kellyanne? You know, well, they're alternative facts. This was, you know, five years ago when she was out there on the driveway of the White House. So we're at this impasse where we cannot communicate at another level. And I'm going to get back into this when Georgia joined us. To me, this is almost biblical because, remember, the classic story of of the Tower of Babel is that it was destroyed because they, whoever they are, God upstairs, you know, confounded their language. And I've wondered about that for decades. And I'm of the opinion now that it's not so much the language, it's the meaning behind the language. It's the perception of reality. We are literally living in a culture where two people looking at the same set of information can come to exactly opposite conclusions. And that, to me, is very, very, uh, frankly, it's frightening because it it, it cannot go on. Now, we can track this back, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on tonight. We can track this back to the founding of the nation. So let's start at the very beginning. The American Revolution, given that there's a whole bunch of people who think and they think they're participating in a a good revolution, even though they do things like January 6th. So you can have the best of intentions and the worst of outcomes. Let's let's go back, you know, to those thrilling days of yesteryear. <clears throat> Sorry about that. And talk about the American Revolution, starting with a pretty amazing question. Was it a revolution? Okay, well, if I can backtrack just a minute, I'll, I'll segue back into that. But okay. I want to start first with something you mentioned earlier about people each claiming their own set of facts and that there can somehow be different facts for the situation. And here's one of the basic problems, and is that I'm not sure that a lot of people really understand what a fact is. Um, that it's, you know, a fact isn't something, the, the, the fact that a lot of people believe something doesn't make it a fact. It simply means a lot of people can believe in it. <laughs> you know, like at one point, probably most people thought that smoking was relatively harmless. Now, that, Well, that, there were doctors that, out there pushing it, right. being paid by the yeah. cigarette companies. And and people would accept this must be a fact because because the doctor because the doctor said so 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 here's the sort of you know the, the, from a, a very simplistic historical standpoint if you're going to look at an historical fact it's the thing it has nothing to do with believing anything it has to do with simply knowing uh, on the, on the basis of overwhelming evidence that something is or is not, or was, or was not. So let's say there was an event that happened in the United States, which we, we call the, the American Revolution, and that, that certainly occurred. I mean, it's, it's not like you can go back and somehow prove that it was all a myth and it never happened, or it was all kind of a dis- misunderstanding. There was a organized rebellion against British rule in the American colonies, and as a result of that, and as a result of French intervention and a lot of time and fighting and money expended, the rebellion succeeded in breaking away from British rule in 1783 and established something that became the United States of America. That's a fact. The mere occurrence is a fact. It's indisputable. On the other hand, once you begin to go any deeper in that, once you begin to try to define, well, okay, what, what, what kind of a revolution? Or was it, you know, that this occurred, there was a rebellion against British rule that proved successful and ended up with the founding of the United States of America. But what exactly happened and why did it happen? And, well, those all become really opinions or theories based upon a more limited set of evidence. 
So none of those are facts. Now, a lot of things, a lot of stories or narratives about something, I mean, here's, here's pretty much what historians do, really. I mean, you know, a lot of people think we just sit down and we take stuff out of the big black book where everything's written and then we write it up for something else. But <laughs> no, that's not it. No, what, what we actually do is we make up stories. <laughs> that's, that's what historians are. They're essentially, you know, in, in, uh, in, you know verbally or in print, they try to take the various assorted and sometimes contradictory facts, the things that happened, uh, you know, the natural disasters, um, you know, the monsoon, which is happening now. There, that's a fact. You can look out the window and you can see it happening. You can, you can compare it with data from other monsoons and figure out whether it was greater or longer. Um, those are all issues that can be established. Now, th- but then you'll get arguments as to exactly why the monsoon is occurring in this particular way. Is it just a variation of the theme? Is it global warming? You know, people will argue about that. Mm. And those are opinions, not facts. So most of what actually passes for history are the opinions about the few facts. So what historians generally do is that they, they collect information and we create a narrative. It's essentially a script that's going to describe how this happens. Okay, hang on, hang on. When you say you collect information, because when I was hired by NASA to write the history of the, uh, 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 you know, Hubble telescope, I had to collect information in the form of memos, documents, letters, you know, official decrees from from NASA headquarters, a a huge amount of paper because this was pre-email. And from that, I tried to distill exactly what you said. I tried to create, so I could write it, a narrative, a story linking these various facts, these hard pieces of evidence. And it was very hard. It was really hard because it was like I had a few bones of the dinosaur and I had to basically make picture of what the dinosaur looked like from linking this letter with that you know, memo with that phone call with that kind of thing. Yeah, so you're, that's exactly right. Putting together a dinosaur, you've got all these bits and pieces and you're going to assemble the animal. You know, and sometimes they got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Many times. You know, like, Many but, you know, times. I mean, you know, it's like, oh no, it's, it's a little head on the brontosaurus. No, it's okay. But, but see, that's, that's an example. They've got, you know, the, the, the bones individually, you know, they, they just, the animal is a fact, the bones are a fact, but how they go together um, well, that just depends upon, to some degree, how people want to, you know, how, whether they like it or not, or whether they were the first one to find it. That that becomes a kind of choice that they make. Now, the interesting thing is that very often what you can do, in fact, most of the time, what you can do given the relatively few actual hard facts you have to work with is that you can create different narratives both of which incorporate all those elements into a comprehensible story. I'll tell you what, let's hold it right there because I don't yeah. want to miss this bottom hour break. I want to give people a little background. When when Rick and I were coming up with this this uh, show tonight, we wanted a title. I wanted something that was kind of interesting and would hook you. And The Beatles came to mind. So here you are. This is why we're talking about revolutions tonight on the other side of midnight you say you want a revolution well you know we all want to change the world you tell me that it's evolution well you know we all want to change the world But when you talk about destruction Don't you know that you can count me out Don't you know it's gonna be Alright 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 You say you got a real solution 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership cost $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, July 25th, 2021. Yes, the Beatles, so you want a revolution. So that was the genesis of uh, our titling of tonight's show. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. He is an historian, and we're starting with the revolution that brought us tonight to where we are, the American Revolution. Okay, that was memory lane. So please continue, Rick, please. All right, so you take the certainties, the, 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 the facts, the things that you know, you don't believe, you know that these things happened. There was a rebellion against British rule. It succeeded. A republic was established in the case of what we call the American Revolution. And then there are different ways to, there are different narratives that you can create. I'm saying that's essentially what historians do. We, we assemble as much kind of you know, raw data facts that you've got, but you, you, have to, you have to do more. I mean, nobody would want to have a history book that simply said, well, then this happened, and then this happened, <laughs> and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And it would just go on. And you could do it that way. And then this happened, and then that happened, and then this happened, and then that happened. Well, you know, what people want to know is, why did that happen? Right? What, which, which of all of these things happening should I pay particular attention to? Um, you know, what, what, what is it? This is the real question they want to know. What does it mean? All right? That's the whole. What does this mean? What does, what does history mean? What does all this stuff happening mean? So, historians, among others, and you know, journalists to some degree, I think, work with these information to, to try to explain what it means, or at least the whys. Uh, and the hows, you know, so how could this happen? Why did it happen? But really it all kind of boils down to what it means. So to sort of come back to what I was talking about, this, this is how I think when people who argue with each other that they have a different set of facts, they don't have a set of a different set of facts. The facts have to be the same for both of them. What they have are different narratives. They have different stories to explain those facts. They have different stories about what those facts mean. Well, let me let me and let me, then let me they think the narrative is the fact. Let me stop you there because the situation we're facing tonight, and there are several areas where it's really the third rail. It's the 2020 election. It's the whole you know COVID 19 thing. It's vaccines. It's not that people disagree over interpretation. They literally accuse the other side of making up the facts of a of a set of lies of such a gargantuan and Brobingian scale that it boggles the mind that they can actually believe that an entire planet can be convolved into 
the levels of conspiracy they're proposing with perfectly straight faces. So I think we have gone far beyond merely interpreting what the facts are telling us. There are huge swaths of the American electorate who absolutely argue that the facts that one side believes are completely made up, fake, fake facts, not real, not, you know, numbers are jiggered, the institutions have been bought, corruption runs rampant, there is huge hidden agendas, they deny the facts themselves, period. Because of those facts, don't, see, this is where the narrative displaces the facts themselves. Nobody's really looking at the facts. What what they've done is they've bought into a particular narrative. If the facts, it's like the old argument that somebody used to say, don't confuse me with the facts, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because often they they can be kind of confusing because they're often not quite as clear as they, they would seem to be. But people have these competing narratives. Really, what they have is they have like their own little individual religions. And the point is, is that if my religion is true, then all others are false. That's it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if mine, if I believe that my narrative is true, if I believe, I don't know, if I believe my narrative is true, then anything to the counter of that must be a lie. That's, that's the only explanation. It, it's, simply, it, it, it's simply a lie. So there's no interest in in, in examining well, it's the more other guy's than narrative. Just a lie. It's, a lie. It's, it's more than a lie. It's a malevolent lie. Yeah. It's a lie designed to kill you by some incredible arcane means based on the facts that are not facts because they're being made up by the other guys. I mean, that's why I'm very concerned tonight that this is not like any other revolution this American experience has gone through because I don't remember, maybe you do, you know, you're the historian, I just kind of play at this stuff, but I don't remember a time where people fundamentally disagreed on simple facts. This happened on that date, period. This set of people died because of this cause, period. That kind of thing. Well, in some ways, it's it's the curse of too much information. Ah. It was, you know, not to sound totally reactionary, but <laughs> <laughs> you can, you know, you can you can go back and you can look at the past. When I'm talking about the past, I'm not talking about 1950. But let's let's go back to the kind of pre-industrial era. All right, let's go back before there was any electricity. Let's go back to the 18th century, the, the century of the American Revolution, uh, you know, when the whole machine age was just sort of beginning. But, you know, the quickest way you could get anywhere was to walk there or have a horse walk you there. Uh, you only could illuminate uh, the night by fire. And uh, there basically weren't any machines to speak of, and everything done was done by muscle power. So as incredibly primitive from our modern perspective is we would see that in in many ways i mean one of the things that often seems to overwhelm modern people if they if you look closely at things like building uh, construction in the back is how long things took and and how just laborious and, and the amount of physical effort that was involved in it and people look at that and go, oh that's impossible i could never really do that well the thing is actually you could <laughs> I mean, that's what people through most of human history had to do. It was just basically a lot of sweat equity into, into, into anything. Which kind of so, loops back to our pyramid story. You know, yeah. people look at them now, and like landing on the moon, they say, oh, humans could never have done that. It must be aliens. Because they've oh. never built anything. If, look, if the thing about human beings, they're like ants. <laughs> if they're going to build something, they're gonna, it, it may take them... What we can't conceive of is the amount of sheer physical labor and time it would have taken. But at that particular point in time, it didn't really matter. It took as long as it took. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a matter that things had to be completed within, within a single lifetime. Well, but anyway, to sort of bring it back to where I was going, the, the thing about those times is that as primitive as they were and as, uh, you know, as extremely limited and class-based and everything else, there was a certain simplicity into it, is that there was relatively little to occupy most people's minds. There, really, there weren't a lot of, there wasn't much to base any kind of counter-narratives on. 
you know, if you lived in a society, for instance, in which there was a king, and there'd always been a king, or a duke, or a prince, or a queen, or an empress, or a czar, and you were basically told by the powers that be that that person was placed there by God, who determined everything, and including your lot in life, um, you know, where it was a rarity if you could read, which was kind of interesting because there really wasn't a whole lot to read, but that there there was, in many ways, only sort of so much information that the average person's mind was, go- was going to be inundated with. And one of the things that we've seen, I think especially has accelerated with, you know, the thing we like to blame everything on the Internet, uh, but one of the things that it certainly has done is to make a tremendous amount of information and opinion. I mean, my God, everybody on Earth apparently has a, a YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, you know, I... Well, remember I Roddenberry's rule, if it's real, it will be uh, on television, and everybody's yeah. taken it to heart, even if they've never heard of Roddenberry, and they all have their own YouTube channel, and 99.9999% of them are junk. They're pointless. Well, They're it's just... one of those things that uh, I, I should, I, you know, to, to a little correction to intro, I'm, re- I'm a retired professor of history for the University of Idaho, so... Um, I, re- I retired last year, so I'm, I'm a professor emeritus now. Ah, another bio to be updated on the other side of midnight. Okay. <laughs> well, it's no big deal. But is but it like – wait, 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 wait. wait. Is, is it, are you really retired because it's like CIA? Do you ever really retire from the company? <clears throat> I think of well, you as I keep, an historian. I, I keep working on, on things for the, the great courses and the rest of it, so I'm I'm some ways maybe busier now than I was before. But I'm only doing what I want to do, see? That's the difference. Ah. Um, that's the difference in this case. But one of the things that I have – in my you know luxury of a certain amount of spare time and with nothing else to watch otherwise i've sort of i've delved deeper and deeper into the bottomless pit of youtube oh no oh and you poor there is, guy there is you know um it's bottomless just, there, well there, there's there is there, and the thing i've been watching is not to plug somebody's show is the thing called primitive skills and it's actually you just watch this guy make iron from iron ore wow <laughs> you know, to build Build a kiln out of mud, and you know, and go out and collect the rocks and smash. But, but it's, it, I don't know. It could be. I'm certainly worse than watching paint dry to a lot of people. <laughs> but I kind of find it fascinating because, you know, well, my wife doesn't get it. My wife just says this guy's just smashing up rocks, and I go, well, he has to make them smaller. Yeah. <laughs> and then he has to make them smaller still. But there's there's a huge amount of stuff out there which, in many ways, is is it, it's interesting and it's educational. But there's other stuff. And I'm not going to go into it, but <laughs> but it, it it involves just absolute blatant fakery. All right, the whole thing is just fake from beginning to end. Or let's put it this way: that's an opinion. I you know I don't buy it for a minute. <laughs> See what these. But uh, let's let's put it this way: there there are shows that have to do with uh, sort of ghost hunting, right? Yeah, it's amazing how many ghosts those shows turn up. I've never, uh, well, I've, so far, yeah, I've never yeah. seen one, but these people have experience, and they have them on cue, and they can put them on television with commercials. Uh, yeah, what I see is people jumping around, scaring themselves in the dark. <laughs> but at any rate, but that too, I, I find weirdly fascinating because. You know, once you're sort of in on it, once you get in on it, and you don't have to be that clever to figure it out, believe me. Uh, there isn't any great intellectual depth required to, to see through this crap. But it was, it, it's fascinating because you can, you can kind of see them creating this as they go through. And you get to a point where you can kind of predict what it is they're going to do next. <laughs> okay, sometime in the next 10 seconds, someone's going to say, did you hear that? And of course, you don't hear anything, but they look like they did. But it's, but there are there is a mass of believers in these shows. You know, there's there there's and, and that's really what keeps it going. I mean, it's entertainment for people who are watching it. But the, many of the people who are watching it seem to take this completely seriously. And well, you I, that's you, the, you have heard the expression relative to the internet, uh, clickbait. 
the idea that you yeah. want the maximum number of clicks and of course with YouTube paying like 0.001 cents or whatever for every click uh, people have an incentive to make it hype to make it interesting to oh, make yeah. it dramatic and so you have this forcing function that exaggerates everything for an audience which will ultimately wind up increasing the bottom line truth does not lend itself well to that model no not at all <laughs> but it's and i just use that as an example of how people can you know and uh Oh, look, I, I'm, you know, again, I'm not claiming any, any great insight to this. It's just, you know, if you watch and pay any attention You all, have too much just, time on your you, hands, Rick. I you, can tell. You, you, can see, you can see the fakery. You can, you can just see it coming off of it like steam off a pond. But you see, right? there, are, there are different categories. Like the first set of shows you talked about is people physically making something. It's like when we used yeah. to live, you know, not far from... Uh, Jamestown or, you know, up in New England, some of the old colonial villages where they recreated everything, including the costumes. And you watch the blacksmith, blacksmith make horseshoes, you know, beating the iron, heating mm -hmm. it in the floor, all that kind of thing. That's not fakery. That's real. But when you get into the other category of opinion or, shall we say, suspicious activities, the sky is not the limit, and there's no way. I want to do a show, and I've got to you know, remind some of my sources on this. I want to do a show about epistemology. How do we know what we know? Because I have a feeling that this goes back to a basic failing in, in you know, education, starting in grade school. No one is teaching anymore. How do you separate the real stuff from the junk? Well, there's plenty of junk out there. Oh my I mean, God! You but know. but it's but this is this is it. you know and people get into these um, uh, something that I've never you know gotten involved into. But you certainly heard of Reddit. You know, apparently where everybody who thinks they have an opinion about something or has some kind of particular obsession, they all get together and they start you know bouncing off of each other. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in some cases, interesting things result from that, but usually it appears that what happens is that people just go deeper and deeper into some sort of rabbit hole, and they all begin re see, they begin creating their own sort of factual universe out of things. And uh, it, it can lead to a lot of bizarre behavior. But that's, that, that's what I sort of meant by, by the, the curse of too much information. And, you know, some people can kind of handle that, and, but a lot of people really can't. Um, they're, they're kind of used to, you know, it, it's one of the things that I think advertising, well, there, let's, let's blame it on advertising. Um, <laughs> Why not? Why not? Mad but, men, but, mad but, men, great well, Let's put it this way. One of the things that advertising conditioned us to was getting used to being lied to. Because I think most of us realize that if we watch an ad, we don't think that that ad is absolutely true we know that someone if you, you know if you have any process in there you, you're thinking you know that someone is trying to sell you something so they're going to sell you something and they're going to put it forward in the best means possible but that there's a pitch that there, there's some sort of reason why that they're doing this well but, it's even, uh, Rick, it's even worse because i know people who think when they see ads that they have to be true because the government has intruded so much in our lives in so many areas that there must be some bureau that holds them to a standard of telling us only the truth. And so there, this kind of nanny state has crept in where a lot of people, when they watch television, it becomes this immersive experience where they're not critically uh, thinking about ads. They're in this semi-hypnotic state, which television tends to inculcate. Uh, and they they really tend, or up until recently, now of course there's a huge cadre of people. I think about half of people consuming information are eschewing television totally, and they're getting their news from Facebook because they think that's truer, which of course is really bizarro. Well, they think that they're trusting the person person who's telling it. To exactly. Them. But, but yeah, I I think that's. I mean, you know, go back to this thing with with advertising. I think it's just. You know, it's like you can be punched in the face so many times and you don't you <laughs> feel it anymore. Or you become, uh, you know, nose blind. Okay, the stink is still there, but you just don't notice it anymore. And with advertising, with the constant, you know, advertising basically lies. 
Um, and or it, let's put it this way, advertising deals with a narrative more than it deals with facts about mm-hmm. its product. And often it tries to you know, masquerade those, but it's, it's, it's very selective. That's the other thing you can do is what facts do you want to present and what ones do you want to, to hold back? But in, I think what that's done is it, it, it began this process of desensitizing people to even you – know, you, you just quit really thinking about commercials. You're just generally trying to find a way for them to get over with, but still they were constantly bombarding you with this particular message, which on one level you know is probably just you know BS to get you to buy something. But on the other hand, uh, at some point I think the brain just kind of turns off to that, and you just begin – you there, there's a – a critical facility that just is overwhelmed. Do you remember, and, and this is a wonderful diversion, so we'll just continue with this, okay, folks. Do you remember when they used to have real car commercials back in the 60s and some of the 70s when car companies really put muscle into ads? And I remember one in particular, Chevrolet took by helicopter the pieces of a Chevrolet <clears throat> to the top of one of the mittens, which are these huge spires sticking up and out of oh, the, yeah, Utah, yeah. and they and they put this car, they reassembled this beautiful Chevrolet convertible, and they had this beautiful model lolling uh-huh. there in the back seat, and they had a helicopter shot, and I remember seeing that, and I I wasn't really motivated to go out and buy a Chevrolet, because my constant thinking during the entire commercial was, how the hell did they get it up there? And how the hell do they get her to sit still to film it? <laughs> and how much did they have to pay her? That was and and, and it, who had to convince somebody this was a good idea and what company bought it? Because it must have yeah. been a fortune and I'm thinking all these things and not, you know, looking at the the allure of the Chevrolet that and I remember huh. it was Chevrolet, which of course I think that's yeah. part of what you're supposed to be left with. The name of the company, the car company, it made an impression. Well, it did that. It made an impression, but it wasn't fake. It was real. And there were stories right. afterwards. You know, there's the, the Clio's where they award, you know, kind of like a mini Oscar for the best commercials in a year. And they described in some magazine I read how they did that. And it was an incredible gargantuan engineering effort for a minute long commercial. It's like building the pyramids. It yeah. needed to be done. And so, well, we'll figure out a way to put this car up on top of the pinnacle. Now, the other thing is, what did all of that have to do with the car? It was designed, I think, to make you remember that it was a Chevrolet. It was a Chevrolet and also to remember that it was a Chevrolet and some sort of like – I mean, the idea was that, one, it was a place you couldn't drive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And and nor would you actually want you would no. why would you ever want to have your car on top of a pinnacle? <laughs> I mean but see that's it, it makes it makes no sense, but it's cool. But it was great television. It, it, it's great television. It's it, it creates this kind of visual. But there's a type of thing where the, the commercial has told you absolutely no useful information whatsoever about the product that it's selling. What it did is that it just posed the product in a sexy pose on top of a pinnacle with a pretty girl on it, and that's the thing you'll remember, and it doesn't tell you anything about the performance, gas mileage, or reliability of the car. One thing I do remember is the way they got the model to loll there in the back seat looking salubrious. They had a producer, an associate producer, hiding on the floor, and he firmly had his hands clamped around her ankles. That's how terrified she was of doing it. Well, I can't say I'd blame her. I'm, I'm not a big <laughs> fan of... of uh, that, that sounds like a nightmare I had once where my car was on the top of a, mm. of a pinnacle. I couldn't figure out how I got there. But anyway, with this, you know, this, this question about what people are fighting about is they're fighting about these narratives. So let's let's take that back to what you were mentioning before about the American Revolution and this question was like, well, you know, if, if you want to get into the different narratives, was it was it a was it a revolution? Well, oh, I, let me let me sort of bring up very briefly sort of two different narratives that you can come up with about what okay, there was a a rebellion against British rule in the American colonies and that led to the successful establishment of the United States. 
So that that's what we can agree upon is is the the fact. So what 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 really happened and why did it happen? Well, you know, the general narrative. Let's put it this way: the kind of uh, traditional narrative was that this this was a divinely ordained act. Um, you know, it's like there's an angel standing at the signing of the Declaration of Independence, whispering. This was all guided, guided by the highest ideas, motivating the 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 most uh, honorable of men, driven by the most noble of intentions. There is nothing that occurred here that was not the work of sort of divine providence and of the highest representation of human nobility, and thus created the the freest, uh, the most robust country that the world had, had ever seen. Right? That's, that's the heroic version of it. Mm-hmm. Now, you can look at the same events, and you can argue what you had here was a colonial rebellion. Okay? It was a colonial rebellion in the same way that all the colonial rebellions that occurred in Asia and Africa, uh, all of those are the matters of the same thing. You had a colonial system, you had a mother country whose rule became increasingly unpleasant to a an emerging uh, mercantile class, which believed they could do better on their own. Uh, they then developed nationalist sentiments, fomented a rebellion for purely selfish economic ends, which they cloaked in high-sounding rhetoric, and which led to not a revolution in any real political sense, but simply a transfer of power from the old regime of the British crown to the new plutocracy which had now enshrined themselves as the ruler of a smaller independent state. And that it was driven purely by economic incentives, and all the high-sounding rhetoric was just that, and exhibit number one to demonstrate it, for all the talk about men being created equal and divine freedom, somehow you found it okay to continue with slavery without even missing a beat. Now... Those are two completely different, irreconcilable narratives that can be used to explain the same chain of events. Mm-hmm. And I'm not selling either one of them. <laughs> I'm simply using those as an example of how you can. All this is really based upon opinion. It's based upon things that you don't know, but that you believe or that you choose to believe about. It comes back to that question again of what these things mean. And this, the, and what those two narratives do is they simply give different meanings to the same actions. Now, that's, you know, that again is pretty much kind of what keeps historians employed to the extent that we are. Uh, <laughs> There are really very many, but that's but that's also the whole source of uh, of the ongoing ongoing argument about this. It's it's one of those it's one of those things that argue that 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 history, if you go about it properly, properly really is a kind of living, breathing thing because it, it can change. You know, you can you can you can create a different narrative or you can tweak the narrative one way or the other, and it's a you know there's there is a battle back and forth. But I think. Generally, people within that realm accept the fact that we're, we're arguing over narratives. We're not really arguing over facts, and we know their narratives. Whereas elsewhere, that distinction has has completely disappeared. You know, everybody goes, has got their own narrative. That that is the absolute truth. Anything which differs from my narrative is 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 a damnable lie. Break time. Hmm. Okay, we are obviously at the bottom of the hour. Actually, no, sorry, the top of the hour. I'll get my clock turned upside down here shortly. Um, my guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. We're talking about perceptions of truth versus truth, or reality and facts versus perceptions of reality and facts, and uh, never the twain sometimes shall meet. Um, you are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And we shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. 
As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank you.